Stay tuned for the Wine Crush podcast, where winemaker stories are uncorked. Wine Crush is supported by Country Financial Insurance. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. I'm your host, Heidi Moore. Glad to have you here for the second episode of Wine Crush. Thank you for joining us on the Portland Radio Project. Today, we'll hear two marvelous wine stories, one woman whose wine is inspired by an old world style, and in the second half, we'll meet the patriarch of a family-owned and operated winery. So first here is Remy Drabkin from Remy Rines. Thanks, and welcome, Remy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So... I've known you for a little while, so about a year or so, and for whatever reason have been always very drawn to you because you're very unique, very interesting, very creative, which I kind of identify with. So you've told me about your story, and I've heard it because we did a, um, a wine night at the winery a number of months ago. So start from the beginning because it started really early on that you knew you wanted to be a winemaker. It did. Uh, I was lucky enough to grow up and be raised in the Willamette Valley at a time when the Oregon wine industry was very nascent. And so uh, because of that, I was exposed to Oregon's first winemakers, um, you know, now that are referred to as Oregon's pioneer winemakers. At the time, they were just Oregon's winemakers. Um, and growing up in that environment, um, being on the periphery of it was really inspiring. You know, as a young child, getting to go on tractor rides and go out into the fields and eat cinnamon rolls while you're picking fruit and then get sticky and make big messes and uh, just having a wonderful time was um, kind of my takeaway. I, I have a lot of great memories from early childhood um, and then I was also raised among, you know, these families who also had children, some of them my age, but uh, also some that were about 10 years older than I am. And so that combination kind of looped me in, you know, when you're six years old, the 16-year-olds are like the coolest kids in the world, right? So I always aspired to kind of emulate them. And many of those kids went off to schools in California and Burgundy and other places uh, to come back and take over their family wineries. And I very clearly started saying when I was about eight years old that I wanted to be a winemaker and was supported by my family in that endeavor. And maybe not right from the start. I think my dad's initial response was something like, no, she wants to be a doctor. But after he realized that wasn't going to happen, uh, winemaker seemed like a good runner up, I suppose. But in reality, my parents supported me a lot. I had my first real wine job in 1995. I was not old enough to drive. So my mom drove me out to Ponzi every day um, before school started. And then once school started after school and on weekends and kept me you know, showing up on time and doing a, you know, teaching me some of those early skills. I continued working in wine pretty much since 95. I've mostly worked in wine. I, I did take a bit of a hiatus uh, and traveled and went to school and did things of that nature, but I've always worked and I've almost always worked in, in wine. So when did you start your own brand then and your own label? I started making my own wines in 2003. I had been living on the East Coast. I was running an Italian restaurant and bakery, and we made wine in the basement there. And when I came back to Oregon and back to working in Oregon wine, I brought with me that idea of making your own wine and that everybody should make their own wine. 
And so I was given an opportunity. Uh, I, I was working at Argyle and, you know, we were making a, a lot of wine, a lot of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and sparkling wine, of course. And we were making a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc that year. And the winemaker at the time, uh, Willie Lunn, challenged me to a Sauvignon Blanc off and gave me enough fruit to make about five gallons of my own Sauvignon Blanc, which inflated my ego just enough to purchase a ton of Sangiovese and start making it in my laundry room, um, which coincidentally is where our tasting room now is. Uh, so <laughs> I started those wines in 2003. I distributed them to friends and family who largely were winemakers and restaurateurs and uh, right away had uh, good feedback. And remember at this point now, I've also been working in wine with um, some very strong mentorship from a few individuals for, you know, for eight years at that point. And I made my wines 2003, four, five, and then in 2006, decided to launch Remy Wines as a commercial venture. And and the Here rest is are. history. Yeah. Awesome. And now I get to do this. This is pretty fun. <laughs> it's been a great segue. Well, thanks for sharing your story. The next segment, we're going to go ahead and look in and talk more about your wines and your unique style. Wonderful. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at PRP.fm. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast where wine stories are uncorked. Our guest is Remy Drabkin from Remy Wines, and she's told us how she knew from a tender young age that she wanted to be a winemaker, which was a great story. I love the fact you started so young, but now it's time to talk about the wine. So start from the what beginning you because you have a completely different take on what you do and what you make. Sure. So I, I mentioned that I had lived on the East Coast for a bit and we made wine there and and that the first wine that I made was Sangiovese. Well, I was able to take advantage in those early years of really before starting the winery of the fact that a lot of vineyard owners had been experimental here, but not necessarily in a commercial way. So a lot of people had Dolcetto planted, Ponzi, Erath, uh, uh, and, and a lot of smaller names that you know aren't as well known, um, but a lot of people had planted that. Somebody had planted a varietal, a gentleman named Bryce Bagnell had planted a varietal called Lagrine. Um, and it was just a half acre planting. Um, and so as I kind of reached into my web of friends and associates, I started finding these Italian varietals and I had uh, focused on them in that time of making my own wines before Remy Wines was um, a commercial winery. And when I started Remy Wines, it didn't make sense to stop what I'd been doing and shift gears and say, now I'm going to make just Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris or these other more well-known varietals from our area. So I continued producing Italian varietals and made Remy Wines a brand that is completely focused on Italian varietals. So the wines are all Italian. They're all single vineyard. They're all 100% varietal. And I also employed old world winemaking techniques early on, especially when it comes to barrel aging. So I barrel aged my wines from 14 months up to three years. Uh, I did have an experience at the same time where I had been working with this other winery and they had some additional Pinot Blanc available. I really wanted to bring it in and make that Pinot Blanc. I, I think Pinot Blanc's a great variety and 
delicious, but I didn't want to kind of bastardize what I'd set up with the Remy wines and the set of rules. So I started a second label also in 2006, and it's called Three Wives, and that's my decided playground. So if it's not an Italian varietal, it shows up under Three Wives. And I've done a lot of wines over the years. Sometimes I'll just produce them for one year. I've done a Cab one year. I did Oxerwa one year. Uh, it's a great way to work with other varietals from vineyards that I'm already working with or to work with a varietal that I'm already working with that's growing at a different vineyard site. But so, I also make like our estate Pinot Noirs under our Three Wives label. So if I remember right, I remember you telling me that Three wives, there's no rules. It's just, it's whatever you feel like doing, you do. Correct. Wines without rules. Little bit of a, yeah. a wild hair and a little badass maybe when it comes to, to wine and being able to do what you want without being kind of set aside from the rest of the industry. Yeah. I mean, I think the wines I was already making were pretty different than what people expected to see coming out of the Willamette Valley. Certainly some of my early sales trips and going and visiting wine shops, people are like, oh, Oregon Lagrine that was barrel aged for two years. And we haven't really seen that before. So there was already, I was doing something different, but I'd also just set up this very, you know, this, a very distinct set of rules. And I like rules, but I also like to bend them sometimes, you know, so... Okay. I think I maybe have picked that up a time or two just yeah. talking to don't you. Break them, just don't break them. Just bend them. Just, yeah, go. yeah. Okay, got it. Good good advice yeah. to be had. So I know you just switched from your R-Bar, which was in McMinnville, mm -hmm. and you now have your new tasting room in Dayton. Yes. And it's a little bit confusing for people where you actually need to go to taste your wines. We're working very diligently with Google to make it less confusing, but... Currently, our winery is still in McMinnville. We're in an area of town called the Granary District. It's also an urban renewal area. So if you were to come out for a visit right now, you'd see a lot of street construction going on. If you come out and visit uh, later in 2018, you'll see beautiful new streetscapes. And our tasting room is at our vineyard property, which is in uh, the Dundee Hills in Dayton. And so it's at the corner of McDougal and Bremen Orchard, which is a incredibly lucky place to be to have relocated our tasting room to because we're situated in between Sokoblosser and Stoller and we're at the bottom of the hill from uh, Domaine Duran and White Rose and Archery Summit. So we are in a just a really wonderful new location, which means a lot of people are finding us for the first time. And that's yeah. that's very nice to be yeah. sharing our story and our wines with people for the first time. Again. Not a not a bad location choice for sure. Those are some big names to be associated with. Yeah. Um, stick around for a few more minutes. Then we'll hear from Remy about all the cool things that she has coming up at the tasting room and outside of the tasting room. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Okay, we're back with Remy from Remy Wines, who is bringing back the signature old world style of wines. But you have some cool stuff going on, which is the documentary that you are part of that we talked about with the last episode. But you're one of the main players in that. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I was contacted a couple of years ago by a filmmaker, Jerry Bell Jr. Um, you may know him better as the Swiffer dad, but he's an actor and a director and had teamed up with Bertoni Faustin of Abbey Creek Vineyards. And they were making a movie about minority winemakers. Um, I fit the bill in a number of ways. Um, 
I'm a gay winemaker. I'm a Jewish winemaker. I'm a woman winemaker. I'm an elected official in the city of McMinnville. I don't know that there's a lot of other elected official winemakers. I think that covers most of my minority status. And so they spent a number of years filming this movie. It's called Red, White, and Black. It's a documentary about minority winemakers in Oregon. And uh, the movie is just now starting to come out. So there have been a few private screenings, um, one at the Oregon Historical Society. There was one at Hotel Deluxe last week. And so we are we're kind of waiting to hear when we're actually going to get to show the movie to audiences at large. But we're in the process of these private screenings. And it's it's a great movie. I think they did a phenomenal job with it. And I was very relieved that I didn't say anything stupid. So <laughs> That's, a, that's was, always a high point yeah, when you feel my, pretty good about it. Yeah, my palms yeah. were pretty sweaty during the first viewing, I have to say. But I, 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 okay. I understand. I, I, get, I get it. So anything else documentary-wise, that kind of, I don't know, genre that you're involved in outside of events at the wine We're a pretty event-focused winery, and so linking in with exciting things that we have going on is is always important. We do a lunch club uh, once a week. We have great things coming up for our our next wine club events because we do a whole series of mini events. I'm getting ready to go do a winemaker dinner in Steamboat, Oregon in April um, with a great new restaurant out of Eugene called The Lion and the Owl. And what else? I'm doing a February winemaker dinner at the Dundee Bistro. So we're doing a, we, I've always got a lot going on. On top of, we're open seven days a week from noon until five. So we're always hosting. My first event that I went to of yours was Bivalves and Bubbles. And I really did not know what to expect, but it was so fun, so awesome. Had my first raw oyster ever. Took a couple glasses of champagne to get there, but, you know, it was well worth it. That was a great event. We always like to do something special on New Year's. In fact, uh, we did this great New Year's event this past year. We did a very traditional Italian New Year's Eve. You were there. We co-hosted. Yeah, very fun. It was very fun. Bubbles and bivalves was one of my favorite and holds a special place in my heart as well because I've developed a shellfish allergy since then. So <laughs> sad so, part so, of my so existence no, now. No more bivalves at no, the I probably at won't be throwing room. big oyster fests any longer, but that was great. I must have eaten a few dozen oysters that day, and I probably had a couple bottles of bubbles too. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, when there's bubbles, you got to drink them. Who doesn't love bubbles? Yeah. So I know with the new wine tasting room at the farmhouse, you have some tours of your vineyard going on. You know, you get to go through the state vineyard and kind of look and see what you're doing. What else should we know about that? What else, you know, what draws people to you? I think we offer a pretty unique, definitely a very intimate experience. Um, So when you come to Remy Wines, I want you to feel uh, immediately welcomed. We do have a tasting bar that you're welcome to stand at, but we also have and primarily do a seated tasting experience. We have a couple small plates that are available. We have uh, different flights. We have wines by the glass. It's it's meant to um, elicit kind of this feel of walking into a small winery in the Tuscan hillside, or even just the, a small winery in Oregon when I was growing up, right? You're just enveloped in, in love and made to feel at home and shared good food and good wine right away. And, and so that's what we, we try to do in addition to the events. <laughs> Thank you, Remy, for sharing your story, your wine, your everything that you're doing um, and coming all the way to Portland all the way to hang out with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So when we come back, we'll be talking with Wes Parker from Koi Pond Cellars.
You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at prp.fm. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Now you'll meet another winemaker with an incredible story, Wes Parker from Koibon Cellars. Welcome, Wes. Thank you for coming in and joining us. No problem. Anytime. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'll be calling you again. Right. Yeah. So so we did some stuff uh, about a year or so ago, and you talked about your story, and I was really intrigued by where you grew up, who you grew up with, and where your career has gone from there. Yeah. So growing up in California in Sonoma County, um, I was born in Santa Rosa and spent most of my life in Healdsburg. And so... When I wanted to play football with my brother in Healdsburg, my only opportunity was to play in a vineyard. And so we were surrounded by Gallo Vineyards off Linton Springs Road and Dry Creek. That was our opportunity to play ball. I literally have like Healdsburg, Gallo Vineyards soil underneath my fingernails. So that was kind of the interlude for me into being a winemaker at that early age because I didn't know I wanted to be a winemaker at that point, but I did know that I was surrounded by the industry and I love the industry very much. And um, there's something about when you're down in California and, you know, you have a totally different climate when you're down there and not only a uh, weather climate, but also an industry climate. And so coming up from California to the Willamette Valley was much different because in California, we constantly had a little bit bigger industry and we would see a lot more um, trucks full of wine grapes and transportation and things of that nature. And then also the amount of grapes that were planted in the soil in California were much bigger at that time also. So that was my start there. And then I moved up to Willamette Valley and about 18 years old, I started my winemaking process in the Willamette Valley and I volunteered for wineries. And so that's where I kind of got my start. And I loved making the Willamette wines, but I always felt like the Willamette wines were, there was more for me than I wanted. And so at that same aspect, I started looking into Washington and I'm like, whoa, what's this Columbia Valley stuff? And how come they have the Cabernet Sauvignon and, and a lot of the same varietals that Willamette has to offer? So then I started peeking my head around Washington and then Washington looked really appealing. It's a newer market really than um, Willamette. And it's been around for a long time also, but it just hasn't been known about as long. And so we're starting to see this huge Washington wine boom. So a lot of my family that's still in California, they want to drink Washington wine. They go to the stores and they're like, oh man, the Washington wine's at the stores and everything. And so there's actually a really nice transition that's happening in California because the California people are so used to California wines that they're sitting there saying, oh man, I want something different. And so this onslaught of grapes are coming out of Washington you know, and so there's 30, 40, 50 different varietals that are awesome all the time. So you just opened your tasting room and you're going to plant a vineyard hopefully soon. So you'll have your own varietals to pull from. But this is truly a family operation. This isn't just you, the winemaker, just making wine. It's your wife's involved, your kids involved. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my wife, she went to Lake Cordon Bleu. And so she is also a phenomenal chef. So our winemakers dinners are actually on site. And so she prepares a lot of the food for them. Um, those are always a really big hit. We also own Children of the Sun Koi, which is uh, koi fish. And that's where we get our name Koi Pond Cellars is from that because we import Japanese koi fish. So when you come to Koi Pond Cellars, you see thousands of koi fish at the same time. 
like you said, we're, we're looking to plant a vineyard there now. So we have to be conscientious about being so close to the Willamette Valley, what kind of grapes we're going to plant, not to be in severe competition with them. We're looking for different varietals, kind of like Remy was talking about, you know, in the last segment, and how you can capitalize on that and offer something totally unique to people. Yet, as a Washington winery, I can still keep producing Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon that I love. But the kids, they automatically want to move right into winemaking and Coymaster. They're kind of split. So I have a 19-year-old son, a 17-year-old daughter, and twins that are 13. And they want to all be participation into the winery and the, and the koi business. Yeah. I love watching what your project has like started from and where it's progressed over the last couple of years. It's been a really great transition and transformation. We'll learn a little bit more about your wines when we come back. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more... Go to countryfinancial.com. Okay, we are talking with Wes Parker on Wine Crush today. Thank you again for joining us and coming in all the way to Portland from Ridgefield, Washington. It was quite the trek. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the koi fish and, and where your name came from, but where did the inspiration for the koi originally come from? That's not a normal... So hobby. Yeah, exactly. And so when I was down in, in Healdsburg, my uncle lived in Sebastopol. And so not a lot of people know where Sebastopol is, but, but it, it is producing a really phenomenal Pinot Noir right now. However, it's about 10 minutes from Santa Rosa, which is really close. So a lot of my time was spent at his place and he had aquariums and koi fish all over the place. So after school, I had the opportunity to like play with the koi fish and learn about them and everything. I just happened to take it to like a super extreme level past my uncle. <laughs> Yeah, I was just over at the winery a couple of months ago, and there just isn't one or two koi. There's thousands of all sizes, correct? Yeah, there's anything from three inches to 40 inches and, I mean, anything affordable, you know, to hardly affordable for anybody. Yeah, I think there was some that were smaller than three inches. They look like fish food for a different species of fish, I think. Right. So when you look at your bottles of wine, you said they're all coming from the Columbia Valley for the most part, and they're Washington wines. And so you have your bigger, deeper reds, your Merlots and your Cabernets and things like that. But your labels are absolutely gorgeous. That was the one thing that really had caught my eye. Yeah. A couple of different dynamics came into that. One, we want to bring both businesses together. And so this is a vision that Michelle and I had in 2001 to start Koi Pond Cellars and Children of the Sun Koi. So for us, this is not two separate businesses. This is one vision that we've always wanted to accomplish from the beginning. In order to do that, we had to separate the businesses and we can't really bring them back together for you know tax reasons, but yet at the property, it's still going to be one in the same. And so we'll start using the Koi water for aquaponics. We're starting a new business called Koi Ponics this spring, and we're going to start using all the Koi water to run through um, vegetables and fruits into a different greenhouse and we'll use that food um, to actually present into our tasting room for our customers. And then also local people can just come and buy their their vegetables and fruits for a quarter of the price and they can buy at the store. So we want to get back to, you know, the the network and the people and the economy, the people that have supported us and further into the future. That's really cool. But, but the labels, so I do all the artwork on the labels also. So the koi fish that I go to Japan to purchase, I actually had, I was like forced to learn Photoshop. So <laughs> that actually came to like into a lot of like use being a new winery because your labeling is really expensive, especially the artwork. 
the koi fish that are on the labels, those are koi fish that I've either owned, own currently, or somewhere across the United States. That's just one area of our wines. So we have other areas also of different wines. Well, you have your geisha line. And then I don't, what wines are included and what are you actually making at the winery? So uh, we make wine club wines. So Tempranillo, Malbec, Viognier, that's aged in acacia barrel. That's a fun one. It's like a lavender um, honey, honeydew on it. Yeah, and then we have Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. Man, I make a white port and I make a red port. You make a white port? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, people love it. Yeah, it's, now I know it's when fun. I'm coming back what we're gonna be <laughs> what we're gonna be tasting. But so we have, we have the signature wines, and 80% of our volume goes to wholesale or available to wholesale. 20% of our wines stay in the wine tasting room. So those are reserve wines and premium wines. Our geisha. The wines, that's a label, that's uh, three labels. We have a white, a red, and a rosé, and those are all blends. So a single varietals are koi fish. Those are representative of 100% of the varietal. Anytime we blend wine, it, we make a new wine. So it's not really a Cabernet Sauvignon. It's not really a Merlot. It's a new wine all its own. And so that's where the geisha comes in. Because in, in Japan, a geisha is much like a human bonsai. So you have a distorted perception of what a human could be, but a geisha is what a human was made. And so we're kind of doing that with our wines, too. We're making a brand new wine, and, but we're taking different wines to make it and make it happen. So that's where the geisha came from was that. Interesting. You had never told me that, so I learned something new today. You've got a lot going on out at Koi Pond. Um, we'll talk more about what exactly you have going on with the events and other things when we come back. listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at prp.fm. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast chock full of winemaker stories and corked. We have Wes from Koi Pond Cellars. We were just talking about awakenings and what was going on with the industry. So can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, um, we're, we're really close to Portland, Oregon, and so it only takes me about 20 minutes to get to the Portland airport. We see a definite deciding factor for people in our own local area that want to find something unique, something that makes them feel a part of it, and then also they're supporting their local economy. We're seeing a lot of our customers come in with huge support because they don't want to go to the store and buy from a big box brand. And one thing that's really nice about um, having a small local winery and a small winery could even be 15,000 cases. It doesn't, you know, we produce 4,000, but it doesn't have to be four. I mean, it's, I'm, we're talking like big wineries like Robert Mondavi, where every year you get the same taste in the wines. Every year you come to Koi Pond Cellar, it's going to be different. I can guarantee that because we let a lot of the art in wine go instead of just trying to maintain the chemistry. But again, back to the network of the people, the people want that. They have a desire to fulfill that. And I really see a, a shift happening in the wine industry to support local wineries. Finding more of a local connection, something that they can identify with and enjoy without going to, like you said, the big box stores to find that bottle of wine that they're so used to. Right, right, exactly. Because yeah. there's also phenomenal wine that's affordable within 20 miles of you. I can, I know it is. Well, and that's something that, you know, has been interesting to me over the last year or so is, is understanding that, that there is affordable, amazing wine at the local winery. You don't have to wait for the clearance sale or the, you know, the Friday specials to come. You can actually get a phenomenal bottle of wine next door from... Yeah, and if you want it cheaper, just join the wine club and then you get it cheaper. So that's like, that's what you need to do, right? Exactly. Well, <laughs> speaking of wine clubs, you were telling me about 
this new wine club that you have going on that kind of blew my mind just a little bit, maybe a lot of bit. Yeah, it, it's going to get even deeper than what I told you before. But so we have a pretty simple wine club um, to offer. It's our bronze, silver, and gold, and it's three, six, or 12 bottles every quarter. And it, we were really super flexible on it. Anyhow, so one of my Koi customers comes by, and he's also a wine customer. And he wanted to join the wine club, and he started at the lowest level, which is fine, at the bronze club. And he quickly says, well, if you can give me the same discount I'm getting from a wine club to everything in your Koi business, I'll just join your highest tier wine club. And I'm like, okay. Sold. <laughs> yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? And so, but it's a win-win for both parties. So you have a wine club and a Koi club. Yeah, we have a Koi club too. And so, Which is a fish club, not a Koi wine club. Right, exactly. Yes. And so both businesses are parallel each other so much. If someone could spend like a month with me, and go through Japan with me, They would, and you're in the wine industry, you'd be blown away on how similar this is. You have wine competitions you know, to get awards. You have koi competitions to get awards in both industries. It was, it was so easy for me to go from actually to go back and forth like I do now from both industries because it's, it's still the same line of work. I don't have to learn two different factions. Huh. It's just the same thing. I just have to, it's just a different product for me. Yeah. Who knew? Right. Well, now we do that koi and wine right. are similar creatures. And I'm tired of people saying, you know, that is there koi water in this wine? And so that's why we're doing the aquaponics, because we're going to put that koi water in the grapes, too. And so I can finally tell them yes. Perfect. <laughs> Exclamation point. Mic drop. Whatever you right. want to do with it. Yeah. Okay. So we're running out of time, but I want to talk about your Airbnb super fast that you okay. just opened and then some of your other events that you had going on. Yeah. So the best way you can see our events is uh, follow us on social media. We're super active on social media, but um, we have winemakers dinners eight times a year. Um, we have wine and chocolate weekend coming up, a Valentine's dinner. Um, so that's probably the best place we can find you know, our events. And we're, we are event focused also. Uh, we have wedding venues, um, things like that. The Airbnb, we just opened that. So that's a 1,000 square foot apartment with a vineyard view. Um, you get a free bottle of wine and tastings. And Michelle and I are also live on site. So usually like the people that come at the Airbnb, we're up later than like 10 chatting with so them. So they get and, to hang out with you as well. Yeah, and I always open like, like library bonus, wine right? and everything. And they're like, this is the best. And I just kind of end up doing it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. You're pretty entertaining for the most part. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us about Koi Pond Cellars and where you're, you're growing up and your wine expertise came yeah. from. It was really fun having you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. It was awesome. Keep up the good work. Well, you know, I try. Wine Crush Oregon is a product of Portland Radio Project with producer Jenna Demmel and edited by Daniel Lynn. I'm your host, Heidi Moore. Thank you for joining us and have a great weekend.